0: Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the European Union's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. On this week's podcast of Cross-Border Tax Talks, I'm excited to have Viba Mabius. Viva is a Dutch tax partner who specializes in international taxation. Viva is our second Dutchman to the podcast. Wow. ViBA, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Doc. Very welcome to be on the podcast. So,
0: ViBA we have had a lot of developments in the last few weeks, months, on European state aid. The podcast, the first five, six episodes of the podcast had really been focused on U.S. tax reform. Last week, we spoke to one of your former tax partners, Martin Mascant on ATAD, the anti-tax avoidance directive, the MLI, and DAC six, the European disclosure requirements. Yep. Well, yep. since that discussion, we've heard that Apple has deposited thirteen billion dollars of cash to uh, at least put in escrow its EU state aid potential liability. There has been a recent uh, announcement by the EU with respect to McDonald's, but maybe before we dive into some of the specifics, what the heck is state aid in the context of tax? And just help our audience understand, because I think there are a lot of misperceptions, particularly in the US, with respect to what does it mean for a particular country to grant state aid to a company or, or whatever the case may be?
1: Yeah. Well, that's a very good question, uh, Doug. So state aid is a provision that is in the EU treaty. It is not specifically written for tax. It's a general provision and it's in there since the beginning of the treaty. So from, uh, from the 50s, yeah, the 1950s. Um, state aid got more and more attention uh, from a tax perspective over the last 10 years or so. Um, And in 2013 the European Commission uh, came out with some comments on how they would approach state aid towards tax, so mostly corporate tax. Um, And we have seen over the last few years that the European Commission has been very active in the field of corporate taxation and state aid cases. And so on your question, what is state aid? Um, State aid in the field of taxation is a measure taken by one of the member states of the European Union uh, that provides an economic advantage to an undertaking, and that can be a private person or a corporate. Um, And that economic uh, advantage should be paid for by the member state or out of, uh, resources of uh, of the member state and it should be selective uh, and in addition it should distort competition or threatens to distort competition between the member states
0: and that is really fundamentally the policy behind this right is they wanted to make sure that that member states were not giving a particular tax a selective quote-unquote selective tax advantage to certain industries or certain types of companies that would unfairly put one Jurisdiction ahead of another—is that fair?
1: That's right. That that's right. So so it's a competition law rule, you could say. So they want to uh, uh, not. It is not possible for a, for a member state to give a selective advantage to either an industry or a group of entities or one specific entity, and if if that happens, so. If state is granted to, uh, to, for instance, a company, you have to consider whether that is existing aid or whether it is new aid. If it is existing aid, existing aid is aid um, that was given, uh, yeah, that, sorry, existing aid is a measure that was already introduced before the member state as, uh, accessed the European Union. Yes. got it
0: so if you have, if a if a particular member state had a rule or a law even if it was selective if that law was a, a kind of accepted if you will by the eu when that particular yeah. member state joined the eu then it's not subject to this rule even if it is by definition selective
1: that's right that's okay. right that's right and and also if there is a selective measure but that was has been discussed with the european union up front it was in approved by the European Commission, then it's uh, considered to be good aid. So, so it's not considered to be bad aid, so prohibited aid. Um, and it's important to make a distinction between existing aid and new aid, because existing aid will not be, there is no recovery possibility of the aid that was granted to a certain undertaking. Uh, so there is no uh, repayment obligation. If it is new aid, there is a repayment obligation, and that repayment obligation can go back ten years in time. And then the benefits that were granted under that rule or scheme or measure have to be repaid to the to the member state, including compound interest. And I that see. can be can be significant amounts. And,
0: and this is what happened with Apple. And with yes. their thirteen billion dollar of Absolutely. potential liability, it's because they were going back. But if there was a member state that had a, you know, selective tax provision that when they joined, then that means that, you know, the the jurisdiction or the member state would only be allowed to recover future taxes as opposed to back taxes. For absolutely, that. absolutely. So let me ask you a question that I know is very difficult to answer and I'm not sure there is an answer, but what does selective mean? And, and, and not necessarily, maybe for the podcast audience, the legal definition, but you know, how do you describe or explain to your clients and your partners what does it mean to be selective?
1: Yeah, so so you cannot uh, give a benefit that is um, that that um, benefits one entity or one group of entities, um, and in order to be to determine that, you first have to consider what is the reference framework. Yeah, what is what are the rules that you need to test against? is that very broad? So maybe the general tax system in a jurisdiction, or is that relatively narrow, um, a a specific set of of tax rules within that general uh, tax system? Uh, So first you need to see what is the reference framework. And if you know what the reference framework is, then you have to test that specific measure against the reference framework and see if there are specific benefits granted to certain companies or a specific company or a whole industry. And, and so I think your point is is that it's, it's relative, right? Selective means that
0: you have to compare it to something else to figure out if this business or this industry is selectively being advantaged compared to something else. That's right. And I think that's been one of the things that's challenging for me is understanding relative to what. You talk about that yes. reference framework and what yes. is that reference framework? Frankly, some of the things that I've seen seem like, well, this is a, a potential rule that would apply to all taxpayers in a particular member state. So by definition, how can that be selective? And I'm not sure that, you know, that is necessarily the reference framework.
1: Yes, yeah, so so there has, if you look at the cases that are currently still outstanding, uh, there have has been a lot of discussion about what is the reference framework, yeah, so. Um, In, for instance, in Santander, that is a case uh, that that was going about the Spanish goodwill case. Uh, The reference framework discussion was was very important there and the European, uh, the Court of Justice more or less said, well, the reference framework that you have to take is the general tax system of Spain and is not the specific rules that are uh, relevant for the goodwill depreciation that was uh, under a, a discussion in that case, and in that case, I think just for clarity,
0: the the question was that you know in Spain when were, they acquired foreign subsidiaries, they could t- d- deduct the foreign goodwill in Spain. That's right. Right, and then the question was, well, is that uh, is the fact that Spanish companies with foreign subsidiaries, if those if they can deduct the goodwill related to those foreign subsidiaries is that given advantage to just a purely spanish company yes because my thought originally and still learning about this particular area is well how can that if every spanish company is allowed to be able to deduct foreign goodwill how by definition is that selective but then when you set up the reference framework relative to a spanish
1: company with no Foreign
0: subsidiaries. Yeah. Then that's where you would get into yeah. the analysis. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So, so in that Santander case, uh, the goodwill was depreciable if you bought, uh, or if you bought a foreign subsidiary. But if you bought a Spanish subsidiary, the goodwill was not deductible. Okay. Yeah, so, so, and and therefore that is indeed important. Yeah.
0: So. So, yeah, I, I think that's just something that, you know, you continue to have to monitor and we're continuing to wait and see how the how commission frames that selectivity argument to be able to better understand, and we'll get more into this as far as understanding where do companies potentially, or where do taxpayers potentially have exposure. So let's turn to a specific example. I think Apple is certainly the most well-known of the state aid cases. Uh, One of the things as an aside, maybe before we dive in that I found it, I've been finding it very fascinating tracking the fact that Apple has been willing from what I've read in the press to be able to deposit $13 billion of escrow, but to find a financial institution and the process to actually deposit $13 billion into escrow appeared to have some challenges, just actually how they administered a $13 billion escrow account. Absolutely. Which I assume has got to be the largest escrow account in the history of the world. Probably, 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 probably. probably. yeah. Although I'm And not it t-
1: took a while. Right, right. So, it's so taken months. Yeah, so it, it, it took a while before it actually happened. So it happened recently, and the decision was taken some time ago. So, right. So, uh, so tell me a little bit about, for, for the, the
0: podcast audience, a little bit, you know, what were the facts in Apple and that was a specific taxpayer? And just talk a little bit about the, the, hit, the background of the Apple state aid decision. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, so the Apple case, well, as you say, is probably the most important, uh, the, the most well-known case, but also because of the amount, yeah? So in the Apple case, um, there were two Irish non-resident Uh, companies, so incorporated in in Ireland, but non-resident status in Ireland, and they operated two branches in Ireland. Um, The two companies were part uh, of a cost sharing arrangement with the US and they had IP in the in the branches um, that were used for sales and marketing activities within Europe, so outside of the US, so a lot of sales proceeds came into those branches. Um, And the Irish authorities issued two rulings, the first ruling in the beginning of the 1990s, early 1990s, and the second one I think in 2007, where they confirmed that um, the vast majority of the sales proceeds, uh, of the sales profits, had to be allocated to the head offices and not to the branches and their head so to office.
0: The, so to the non-residents?
1: To the non-resident Irish companies uh, that were not taxable in Ireland and were also not taxable elsewhere. Uh, and only a portion, a very limit, uh, relatively small portion was allocable to the branches and was taxable in Ireland at the level of the branches.
0: And the rationale uh, presumably, Biba, was that the intellectual property that they have been cost-sharing under the U.S. cost-sharing rules was really at the head office, and that was what drove the underlying value was this intellectual property, and that the, the people in the branch, in the Irish branch, then obviously added some value, but the majority of the... The, the returns ended up at the head office. Yes. Which was not subject to tax in Ireland.
1: Yes, and, and not only not in Ireland, but but it was n- nowhere taxed. Yep. Yeah. So, and the European Commission said, well, if I look at the head offices, I do not see any employees there. I do not see any assets there. I, I see a board of directors, but the board of directors only take very limited decisions, so under our rules, under the, the European transfer pricing rules, we believe that the, uh, the vast majority of the profit should not be allocated to the head offices, but to the branches of those Irish companies, and therefore should be taxable in Ireland.
0: And, and one of the things that I think it's important for taxpayers to, to understand is that part of this is a result of the U.S. cost-sharing rules. Right? Like we have these rules, these regulations that we would say from, I say we, that I would say yep. as a U.S. tax advisor, as a U.S. tax person, that, the, that because they're sharing in the costs and the development, that that intellectual property is at that Irish non resident, that it's at that, the, the parent, if you will, the head office. But I think from a European perspective and under European transfer pricing principles, they'd say, well, there aren't any actual people there, even though for US tax purposes, they're deemed to be there as a result of our cost share rule. So it's just a, a fundamental difference in the, in the two different tax systems.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, fu- fully agree, Doug. It, it is a mismatch, you could say, between the way that U- US looks at, say, transfer pricing in, in, for, for, for this situation and how the European Union looks at transfer pricing for this situation. Yeah. So um, the European um, Commission said, well, if th- there is no economic justification and no factual justification to allocate all of those profits or mostly all of those profits to the head offices, yeah, because there is no activity there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and that is significant people functions are relevant in our transfer pricing rules. They say, okay, well, we do not see significant people functions in those head offices. So there, therefore, why is it allocated to the head office? Um, and so, so what so what the, the the commission then
0: determined was that that Ireland, when it granted these rulings to allow a relatively small amount of those overall proceeds to actually be subject to tax in Ireland, yep. had granted Apple state aid in those rulings by not allocating more of the profit to the Irish branch.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, definitely. So so they said, Well, why did you allocate it to the head office and not to the branch? We see if we look at the at the entity all the activity takes place at the level of the branch and therefore the profits or almost all of the profits have to be allocated to the branch. And that didn't happen and therefore you have paid too little tax in Ireland and that amount is considered to be state aid. And so where Apple is in the process and there
0: are at least a couple dozen of these currently in in, in different parts of the process but I think where Apple is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the commission has ruled that, that Ireland improperly granted state aid. That's right to Apple. Yeah, Ireland then has to go and collect the money from Apple. That's where this thirteen and a half billion or whatever the number is has been deposited in escrow. And then the next step, then I think Apple has publicly said that they plan to contest this. Yeah, right. And then what, what is what? How does that process work?
1: Yeah, so. Firstly, so the Commission took a decision that they believe that Ireland has granted illegal aid to Apple and that has to be repaid. Both Apple and the Irish government uh, do not agree with the decision of the European Commission and they um, are, are going to litigate. In. In most of the cases, if- And if that's if fair,
0: and sorry to interrupt, but yeah, I think you, you corrected me, which is right. So it's, it's actually Ireland, not Apple, that fights the, well, the, the EU, yeah. right? But obviously Apple has a, a continu- a, a, an important stake.
1: Yeah, I, I think actually it's both. Okay. Yeah, so, um, and in most of the cases, if you start litigation, um, th- there is a suspensive effect for, t- for the repayment. In the case of the state aid rules, there is no suspensive effect. So, so therefore, even though Ireland and Apple are going to litigate or are litigating, they still has had to pay the illegal state aid in this deposit account. Um, so they will fight the decision of the European Commission. They first go to the General Court of Justice, um, and then yeah, that's, that, that say, the lower court of the European Union, you could say. Uh, the general court then has to take a decision. And if it is positive for Apple and Ireland, they will probably not go to the Court of Justice. But maybe, uh, maybe the European Commission then goes to the Court of Justice. If it is negative for Apple and Ireland, they will probably go to the Court of Justice. The Court of Justice is the highest court in the European Union, and they will take a decision that will be binding. And is there a specific, are there tax people that are specifically
0: focused on this or, you know, because in the U.S. system we have a tax court, we have, you know, like there are different ways and and that you can potentially litigate. I assume that doesn't work like that in in Europe.
1: No. So, well, one of the challenges is that this is the state aid provisions are competition law provisions, but it is now applied in the field of taxation. So it is really a marriage between competition law on the one hand and tax law on the other hand. Um, If you look at the members of the courts, I think most of the judges are not expert in the field of taxation. So they are more uh, competition law people Mm -hmm. and not so much tax people. So that, that, that could result in well, in in, in, in different uh, decisions than if you would have a specialized tax court, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and we see that in the US where many times where litigants will start is in the tax court, but then if things get appealed and when they go up to the appellate level, then they're not tax-specific yeah. judges that yeah. are you know, determining the outcomes. Yeah. So stepping back from Apple, because Apple was really focused on uh, a potentially selective or arguably selective regime that or a selective ruling that Ireland gave a particular taxpayer yeah and so you know it presumably whatever happens to Apple is is just relative to Apple that's right right? but I uh, but understanding what happens to Apple I think other taxpayers and we'll get into this a little bit later should then think about do they have potential risk on any rulings maybe that they had but I also understand that there are some regimes that the EU has been focused on that member states may have that would apply to multiple taxpayers. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I think maybe Belgium was one of the examples.
1: Yeah, so yeah. So, so um, illegal state aid can be given on the basis of a specific rule so or a specific situation. So a ruling issued in the case of Apple or a ruling uh, issued in the case of Starbucks, for instance, or a ruling issued in the case of Fiat. But you can also have um, a section of a, of the tax law uh, that, that could be considered to be illegal state aid. Yeah. So, for instance, as you mentioned, the Belgium excess profits rulings, uh, that was a ruling practice in, in Belgium uh, where the Belgian of, uh, tax authorities uh, issued rulings to taxpayers uh, where the excess profit, so the profit that you would normally not expect to see in the commercial circumstances in the accounts of a certain entity, that excess profit was taken out of the, uh, taken out of the taxable basis. And there were, I think, 35 rulings issued. And so, so that was more or less, Um, a set of rulings that was considered to be um, illegal state aid, according to the European uh, Commission. That also still is under litigation, so there's Mm -hmm. no final decision by the Court of Justice there yet. Uh, But but, but, but that is uh, a group of rulings or a regime, you could say, that was challenged. Another example is, for instance, the uh, Gibraltar um exempt uh, exempt income rules so so Gibraltar uh, had a rule that exempted uh, interest and in royalty income so that was a set of rules in Gibraltar and that was considered to be illegal state aid by the European Commission as well so so
0: a group of taxpayers then that had taken advantage of that regime in Gibraltar who had taken advantage of that regime in Belgium would yep. then potentially be subject to Back taxes, what up to up to ten years, right? Because I don't think yeah. either of those were yeah. to go back to the beginning of the conversation. Neither of those were existing aid, right? Those are both examples of um, uh, or of new state aid.
1: Yeah. So, so so that will then be the discussion. Yeah. Was were the rules already in place before Belgium uh, accessed the European Union? If that was the case, it was it is considered to be existing aid, and then there is no reclaim possibility for the European Commission if that was not the case then it is new aid and there is a reclaim of ten years. Yeah. And
0: is that something that the Commission when they do their initial findings tell like that's part of the initial findings is it existing aid or is it yeah um, new aid and then because then if you know s- assuming or if the Commission comes out you know in a- against Belgium then Belgium then has to go and collect from those 35 different companies right either the, the, the presumably the historic amount of the taxes plus interest.
1: That's right, uh, yes, and going back 10 years. Yeah, yeah so, going back so 10 years. Yeah, Which so, so th- and, and that could be significant amounts. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we have seen it in, in the case of Apple, but also in some of the cases of the Belgium access profit rulings that, yeah.
0: So what do you tell your clients and what do you tell taxpayers? I mean, it's, you know, and particularly as as a US person that, you know, a US lawyer, I'm still trying to understand exactly how the process works. And it's been fascinating for me. And learning more about European, you know, competition law, which is really the the foundation of this. Yeah. Um, What do you tell your clients? Is there anything to glean from each of these cases? And, you know, how do you uh, how do people try to minimize risk in this area?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a complex area and it's a complex area that is constantly moving. Yeah? So we have seen the European Commission take quite aggressive uh, positions in my view, uh, but, but we should be aware of, of the developments and how this is evolving. Um, so we spoke about it can be aid to a specific taxpayer, it can be aid to a, uh, to a specific regime uh, but it can also be a distinction between a transfer pricing challenge or a challenge on a technical basis, yeah? So for instance, McDonald's um, uh, was not a transfer pricing case. It was a discussion about whether the Luxembourg-US treaty uh, w- would give an exemption in Luxembourg for the profits that were allocable to the, uh, to the US permanent establishment. Um, and very recently, the European Commission has decided that they will not continue with that because they believe that Luxembourg have rightfully applied the US-Luxembourg Treaty and exempted um, the income. But that was, not, that was not your question. Your question was, what do we tell our clients? So, and, and what do we uh, discuss with our US colleagues? Um, but but well, I
0: think that I mean that that it, you know what you just mentioned is important to to discuss and you know because there is you can group them kind of into transfer pricing issues which is the Apple you can group them into regimes then you can group them into maybe technical issues that are specific yep. to yep. a taxpayer yeah but and those are nuanced distinctions right because yep. there are lots of different companies that have profits in Ireland and big R and D and there are countless number of US multinationals that have entered into cost share arrangements you know where there's using European holding companies or you know European principles and so really kind of understanding those distin- distinctions I think is one of the first things that we yeah. try to communicate to the clients now what you can glean from some of those decisions I think is a lot more challenging
1: yes yes no no so yeah so if you look at the transfer pricing, challenges. Um, And and this is more or less uh, a learning curve for for all of us. Mm -hmm. So um, a few questions I I think are relevant. So, uh, for instance, um, how good is the transfer pricing analysis? Was it very robust or was it not very robust? How accurate were the facts and circumstances in in this situation? Uh, Is this how this works in the industry? how rigorous was the assessment by the tax inspector? Yeah, when they when they issued the ruling, and another question is, can you explain this to your children? To your children, for instance. Yeah. So can you explain the outcome? Is it logical? Yes or no. And and that and, can be all. Particularly
0: those questions that you asked with respect to logic and transfer for pricing. Can be very challenging because in the US, we're following these cost sharing rules, right? Yeah. Which yeah. create this these deemed activities in a legal entity where there may not actually be any activities. But the US regulations tell you that. Yeah. But then you, I can get and understand that Europe and the European tax authorities would say, well, we don't care what the US regulations say. Oh, no. There yeah. is this Irish non resident with nobody in it. Why should there be profits allocated? And so that is just a just fundamentally differences in how different countries tax you know create these issues and it, it's it, there 's not always a way to square those differences
1: absolutely absolutely it is it is a mismatch as we said uh, earlier in this discussion on how the u s looks at this and how Europe looks at this uh, so so europe Europe applies. Their transfer pricing rules, and there has been a discussion whether Europe has its own transfer pricing rules for state aid purposes, or whether they will uh, apply the OECD transfer pricing rules. But um, so so those are a few questions for transfer pricing cases. Yeah. Uh, so is it logical? Yeah. Can you explain the outcome? Have the OECD transfer pricing guidelines been applied? Yes or no? Um, then, if you look at more structural or or tax law specific um, uh, challenges, then a few questions are relevant also. yeah, Does, does the entry result appear particularly beneficial, yes or no? How clear is the application of the law? Is it clear or is it not clear? Is the measure restricted to certain situations, certain entities or certain industries? Um, is the measure or ruling new or longstanding yeah could it be new aid or existing aid which could could be very very important how accurate are the facts and circumstances like in the transfer pricing case that is here also relevant yeah so so those are questions that you need to consider if you think about this and the awareness of state aid in the field of taxation has dramatically increased over the last few years and we are still learning yeah so this is not a static field of expertise. This is very dynamic. And sometimes uh, the outcomes are a little bit surprising. Yeah, so why? Yeah, so, so if we look at it from our European transfer pricing perspective, we say, OK, well, you have to. So, for instance, in the case of the Irish branches of Apple, you have to look at what is the functionality in the branch? and what is the, the risks and assets and people functions in, those, uh, in the branch. And that needs to be uh, remunerated on an at arm's length basis. And maybe there's a lot of value attributable to the IP. Maybe that and, and a lot of activity is taking place in, relate, uh, in relation to the IP. Maybe that is not in, in the head office in, in Ireland, right. but maybe that is in the US. Well, I, I think that's probably a good way to
0: end these things. I think, you know, Viva, we could talk about this for, for hours and hours. And I think the way maybe you stated it is a good way to, to end things, is that taxpayers, practitioners, other governments are going to need to continue just to monitor this. Um, it is a highly dynamic and evolving area in the law. We continue to be surprised by some of these changes. I think I'm done and trying to predict how some of these results may may, or what the results may be of some of these particular cases. And we're just going to continue to need to monitor and then I think each taxpayer is going to have to understand and assess what their individual risks may be as they learn from, from the commission what those standards are. And we're breaking new ground. The EU is really breaking new ground and defining what these what these standards and what selectivity means. And yeah. each one needs to be done on an individual basis. Yes,
1: yes. And it is it is complex. It is dynamic. And it is not black or white. Yeah. So there's a, there's a quite a big gray area which still needs to be evolved, and and we need to see how it further develops. So, so it is a speci- very specialized uh, area where, as I said, competition lawyers and tax lawyers work together to come to the best outcome and understand whether a specific measure could be illegal state aid, yes or no. Well, ViBA it's
0: been a pleasure talking to you about this issue. This is my first cross-border tax talks coming from outside of our Washington DC studio. So we're coming to you from Amsterdam in the Netherlands, our roving studio. So I'll apologize for, you know, any of the background noise and, uh, <laughs> but I really appreciate you uh, sitting down with me and cross-border tax talks to share some of your knowledge and
1: answer some of the unanswerable questions. So it was a big, big pleasure to do this and actually a lot of fun. So so I didn't know exactly what to expect from this podcast, but it was a lot of fun to do. Well,
0: thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services leader in the US. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks.